podcast this week, we have more directors than you could shake a rosary at. Do you shake rosaries at things? Anyway, we've got no. David Gordon Green, director of The Exorcist Believer. We say fair play to Chloe DeMont, director of Fair Play. And we have a perfectly framed interview with Wes Anderson, director of The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and all those other Roald Dahl shorts that popped up on Netflix recently. How exciting. All that, plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast, I would quite like a replay of The Mist due to some controversial VAR decisions that were taken towards the end of that film. Check complete. Check complete. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week we're recording it remotely due to some scheduling shenanigans. So we're joined in the virtual pod booth by my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. How are you? I'm here to provide my Catholic expertise on yes. exorcism. What would, if you had someone who was possessed, Helen, yes. you know, either by the Egyptian moon god Khonshu or someone else, maybe sure. Pazuzu, mm. uh, what would you shake at them? Your bootay? A rosary? <laughs> what, what, a what would you shake? A Polaroid picture, actually. It's a, it's a little known um, You little shake known it fact. like a Polaroid picture. Yes, you don't yes, shake a Polaroid picture. No, well, I, but I would shake a Polaroid picture in this case. Or Taylor Swift, were she available? That would also be acceptable. Um, but James can back me up. Yeah. She 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 yes. deals with all these things. James Dyer, a great big fucking nerd, is also here. James is Pazuzu a Swifty? Uh, I would say so. <laughs> I would say so. Definitely. <laughs> uh, and we're also joined by the seventy fourth best dressed film journalist in his room right now. It is, oh. of course, wow. Only oh, kidding. No, he's he's wonderfully dressed. River Island's greatest. It is Amon Warman. Uh, I hope they get some sort of discount from the River Island or Zara at this point. We we've name checked them so much. Anyway, welcome, welcome, welcome. How are we all? Good. Ready for the madness that is the LFF. It's exciting. The LFF is exciting. The London Film Festival is exciting. It's very exciting. Everything's exciting. Uh, do you know what else is exciting? The fact that we have one hour to record this podcast, oh so we should <laughs> we should get on with it. Uh, I have a hard out in f- 64 minutes from now. We've got a lot to get through, including this week's question, which I have not told you guys, uh, but I know this. You will hate this. You oh will hate this, but it tickles me immensely. It comes from Michael Prowse, uh, Dave's kid, presumably. Surely, yeah. <laughs> who uh, slid into my DMs today. I do not know what this person's called on Twitter. Mog038. Mog038. Questions for the pod. Apologies if you've done this already. Name all 25 official Bond movies in order. Uh, bonus points if you can name the artist who sings the theme. All right, what? go for it. <laughs> Dr. No. Dr. No. Helen straight in. Helen, noted Bond hater. But I suspect... <laughs> Helen might do pretty well at this. I might know that some of the artists who sing the songs. Mm. Okay, okay, let's let's do that. You can okay but in order. Mm. Let's give it a go. Ooh. Let's give it a go. All right. Okay. I can obviously do this with of course my you eyes can closed. Yes. I can do it backwards, but that's fine. <laughs> I'm going to stand to one side. Of course you are, mm. Helen. As Dr. is James no. apparently because he is fully disconnected at this point. Um, James is not even listening to us. James <laughs> is, as far as I can tell. Well, Googling. I think he's Googling. I'm not Googling. I hope he's Googling. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I'm in, engaged in a, in a text exchange with Nick Semlin of this parish. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Dr. No was the first one. 
what's the Doctor No song? There is no Doctor No theme. Song. Okay then, so that's a that's a pass on part two of the question because the theme tune at the because beginning the of theme Doctor tune No is is the Bond theme. Yes, but also. Three Blind Mice, a version of Three Blind Mice. Of, of that's what I was going to say. Is Three Blind Mice is the is the Bond song in that film? <laughs> All good. Anyway, Doctor No, you are correct. Doctor yeah. No, uh, Jimbo, I'm going to come to you next. What is after Doctor No? Well, I was going to say. Google imagine it. for the, for the sake of argument that I maybe I'm not entirely au okay fait with what on earth we're talking about at the moment. So, so what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still getting texts, but this one I'm just ignoring them. <laughs> professionalism, it's the key, isn't it? I could text Nick and ask him, tell you what, we'll do this as a group. Yes. You tell me what it is, I'll text Nick and see what he thinks. No, just text Nick and go, what are we talking about? Yeah. And then see, we'll and, see and then whatever he replies. He might know. Uh, the question is... Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yes. The question is, can you name all 25 Bond films in order? And you get a bonus point okay. for naming the person who sings the theme song. Okay. All right. Well, so Helen yes. has volunteered Dr. No. Okay. What's next? From Russia with Love is next. And the song is called From Russia with Love. <laughs> so that's relatively straightforward. It's true. Sung by? Uh, it's Matt something? It is Matt something. Matt? I don't know who. Matt Cardle. It's Matt, Matt Cardle. <laughs> Matt Cardle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> From uh, The X Factor, who beat, who beat lovely Rebecca. That's lovely right. Rebecca. <laughs> and One Direction. Yeah, he beat <laughs> off One Direction. I bet he did. Golly. To uh, to triumph in the uh, in the X Factor. Uh, all right, it is Matt Monroe. Matt Monroe sings from Russia with Love. I know love. the next one, if all that right. helps. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're skipping around. It's now Mon's turn. If Amon fails, oh, then no. you can, you can, okay. you can yeah. dive in. Amon, what's the third James Bond film? I think the next one is Goldfinger. Correct. Yes. yes. Get in. And the song's called Goldfinger, and it's sung by Shelley Bassey. All about that, Correct Bassey. Correct, Amundo. It is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hell's Bells, back to you. Is that the next one then? Diamonds are Forever? Oh, hell no. no. Octopussy. Oh, no. I don't know. It's not unusual <laughs> to get this one wrong, Helen. Okay, Thunderbolt. There we go. Tom Jones. Very good. <laughs> is it very good, Amon? I don't think that's very good, but okay. With the uh, the apocryphal story, of course, that he passed out singing the the final note in Thunderball, um, which is <laughs> no why it way. just cuts off, <laughs> followed swiftly by a siren. Um, all right, who's next, James? Yes. What's the fifth James Bond movie? So wait, 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 Thunderball. Uh, oh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking borderline casual racism. You only live twice. <laughs> <laughs> borderline. Borderline. Borderline, borderline. borderline casual racism. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the yes. song, of course, You Only Live Twice, uh, uh, it's, um, uh, it's Nancy Sinatra. It is Nancy Sinatra, yes. You Only Live Twice. Uh, Amon. Bonus points if you sing the song. Diamonds are forever. Well, the right song is the Amon one that I would choose. is but. incorrect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how many did Connery do? We've had five? And then yes. there was Lazenby. Yes. Oh, and there was Lazenby. On the stick at Sam's Damn weird. All right. Yeah. And who oh. sings the, the title song of Honor Majesty's Secret Service? Louis Armstrong. The time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's my Louis Armstrong. I'm so glad you've woken up. Was my Armstrong <laughs> a stretch? 
Oh, that was a good. That was a good joke. <laughs> that was a good joke. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I don't know. Your Armstrong put me through the mill, so it was an Armstrong and Miller. Yeah, yeah, I don't understand that mm. reference. They sketched you. The Never heard of them. Sandra Armstrong. No. I don't know. I thought your Armstrong joke was pretty pointless. Again. Because Sandra oh, Armstrong yeah, sounds yeah, pointless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> working um, on a Neil Armstrong, I can tell. Just, oh, come on. that's good. He's a there famous person who did the moon thing. Yes. yes. Uh, yes. James, that was one small step for James. <laughs> one giant leap for twat kind. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, although, if you talk about title song, that ain't the title song. The title song is an instrumental. So, <gasps> that is right. Yeah. But is that really a song if it's instrumental? Yeah. Come on. We only have an hour for this whole podcast. Uh, yes, but it is, of course. We have all the time in the world. Uh, <laughs> oh, sung boy. beautifully by Louis Armstrong uh, in that movie. Which brings us on to movie seven, which is, Helen? That's Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. That, that is Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> sung by? Shirley Bassey. Yeah. Of course. All right. So then, okay, I'll give you a little clue here. Our boy, Sean into history at that point, and he is replaced by Roger. Roger. So, uh, the, okay, as quick as we can, because I want to do, <laughs> I want to do the rest of the podcast <laughs> as quickly as we can. What is the first Roger Moore James Bond film, James? And uh, um, oh, tits. No, it's not tits. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's an unofficial one. <laughs> it's not canon. It's not canon. Uh, it's Live and Let Die. It's Live and Let Die. Okay. It's Live and Let yes, Die. Yes, it is Live and okay. Let Die. Yes. So it's Paul McCartney. Harry Saltzman and Cubby uh, Albert R. Broccoli present Roger Moore as Ian Fleming's James Bond 007 in Tits. tits. I mean, in many ways, an accurate description of several of these films. So, Oh, dear. Uh, some by Paul McCartney and Wings. I'll give you that one. Okay, uh, I'm on. The Man with the Golden Gun? Correct. Boom. Straight in there. Who sings it? No idea. Oh, wasn't that ooh. Nancy Sinatra again? Um, no, 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 it's uh. not. It's one word. Oh, it's one. Lulu. Yes, Lulu. That's it. All right, third Roger Moore movie, Helen. Oh fuck! This is, I, honestly, I don't. I don't care what the listeners are thinking. This is the most fun I've had in the podcast <laughs> in a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, honestly, the news section and reviews can go hang as far as I'm concerned <laughs> right now. <laughs> I don't remember even all his films. Is it for your eyes only? It's the one with the car. It's the one with the submarine car. <laughs> it's the one with the submarine car. Helen. It's the best oh, one, Helen. It's the best one. Is it's it also though? got this. It's got the second no, best no, theme tune. Why who love me? Correct. It, it is. And the theme tune is. Oh, oh, Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. Yes. Correct, Amundo. Oh, yes. You're so fain, you probably think the song is about you, don't you, James Bond? Um, <laughs> okay, fourth, more, Jimbo. More. More, more. <laughs> uh, Just name another body part. <laughs> it's, no, hang on, hang on. It's either... Bums. It's either <laughs> For Your Eyes Only or Moonraker. Oh. I'm... I, oh. I'm pretty sure it's Moonraker. I think it it's Moonraker. It is Moonraker. And, and that's the Bassy again, isn't it? Sung, it's a Bassy. Yeah. That's, that's Bassy. That's the last Bassy, by the way. So you can't, you, you can't resort to just saying Shirley Bassy from now on. <laughs> it's Bassy! It's Bassy! <laughs> it's Bassy. Hoping that it gets bassy, you, it get it right. Bassy, singing tits! All right. My God. Um, I'm on. Fifth Moor. For your eyes only. Mm, only for you. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Sung by... Again, no idea. Um, it's it's an absolute fucking shocker of a theme song. This one. Well, I'll, get, I'll, I'll tell you this: if you ever played the video game Planescape Torment, I'm on. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons video game. The voice of the character Anna is provided by the '80s pop star who sang this song. 
sing this song? Who singed this song? <laughs> Who sings this song? <laughs> and also grammared my grammar. <laughs> Again, I don't know. It's Sheena Easton. It's Sheena, Sheena Easton. Easton. Sheena Easton. All right, this brings me back to Helen. Helen yeah. Sixth. Roger Moore. Roger Moore. We've had Moonraker. We've had Moonraker. It's a one-word title. I'll give you that. Oh, oh, it, this is Octopussy. Yes. This is Octopussy. This is Octopussy. Yes. And that was another Tom Jones? No. No. But it may be the worst Bond song. <laughs> I think it's the second worst Bond song. <laughs> no, the third worst no, Bond song. No, another day is fine. <laughs> yes, I agree. Thank you. I've just thought of another one that's even worse. Uh uh, I will. Uh, it's uh, an all-time low oh, for dear. the yes, it is. for the Bond franchise. Oh, it's an all-time high yeah. by I that person who sang an all-time high. Rita Coolidge. Oh, oh yeah. Rita. No, that <laughs> I'm just going to repeat the names. Rita Coolidge. Rita Coolidge. <laughs> Rita Coolidge. Uh, Coolidge. Jimbo. Uh, Roger Moore bowed out on a high. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, oh oh uh, well so okay so this uh, the next one is a view to a kill which may be the best. Bond song. Well, the most. Ba- well, okay. Well, no. Okay, okay. It's the it's the mo- it's the one that's the biggest banger, right? Like Duran Duran. It's 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 a banger. It's a bop. It's a banger. It's the biggest I, bop I, on this I, list. I'm saying I, maybe not the best song, but the biggest bop on this list. <laughs> that, that was a lot of big statements in the last yep. twenty seconds that you've made. My I'm goodness. saying it. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. If you were at an '80s club night. And you wanted a Bond song, a Bond song to play, and you didn't want me to sing along to it. You, it would be this, right? It would be this. When we did Bondioki, this was a stormer. We don't want James to sing the song. <laughs> no, we, you don't. You know. Mine's coming up. Your one wouldn't be in the eighties anyway. No, that wouldn't. was nineties. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. All right, okay. Let's stay in the eighties. We're going to Amon now. Amon. Uh, at this point, Roger Moore exits left. Yeah. Pursued by Blofeld, <laughs> and he is replaced. By T. Daltz, mm-hmm. the greatest of all Bonds. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry, I'm not having an argument. Uh, <laughs> that is a statement of fact. The greatest of all Bonds, and he starts off his two film reign with the Living Daylights. Yes, correct, Amundo, and the song is sung by Alan Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> I, is it Aha? Aha! It is. Aha! Yeah. <laughs> Knowing me, I'm on woman, knowing you. Uh-huh. Uh, all right, Helen, you know the answer to this. The, the last T Dolls movie is. Because I wasn't sure which order the two yeah. came in, but I do know the other one is License to Kill. And yes. that means. It's License to, to Kill. To Kill. And that means Gladys Knight, right? Yes. It does, yes. Yeah. Now, of course, the original title of that movie for a long time was License Revoked. That now wouldn't wonder... have been as easy to write a song around. I got a no. license revoked. <laughs> I was going 40 in a 30 mile per hour song. Got a license revoked. Good God. All right, Timothy Dalton bows out oh, yes. uh, with License to Kill. He, he drops the mic he with the greatest Bond and movie. And then six years later, James, James picks up the mic bam, and makes bam, his bam, wish bam, that bam. the mic had not been dropped. <laughs> I've lost track of who's next. It's James. James. It is me. It is. It is. Golden Eye. <laughs> <laughs> My karaoke number of choice. Yes. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> yes, My Tina Turner yes, is legendary. Indeed. He absolutely will not stop <laughs> until, until you are all dead. <laughs> all 
All right. Amon is thinking, I can see Amon's serious face because now he's thinking, what is the <sighs> second Bronholm movie? The, the second Pierce Brosnan movie. Someone asked me on the podcast recently on Twitter, why do we call him Bronholm? Uh, Pierce Brosnan, why do we call Pierce Brosnan Bronholm? And the answer is because Adam and Joe called him Bronholm. It became a running joke on their show and it's something that I have carried on, the grand tradition. Amon, the second Pierce Brosnan James Bond film is... Mm, it's either the world is not enough or tomorrow never dies. Why don't you just throw in the other one just for good measure? Either, <laughs> you, have, you have three to choose right. from. It's either the world is not enough or tomorrow never dies or die another day. Yeah, well, I know it's not die another day. Um, All right, okay. It's a, this is a bad song. It's a bad song. It's not a bad it's song. A bad it's a good song. song. You're a bad song. <laughs> Your face is a bad song. Oh, I'm going to go with... <laughs> Tomorrow Never Dies. You would Correct. be right. Sung beautifully by... Sheryl Crow. Yeah. Correct! Yay! I don't mind that song. It's a good song. It's yeah. terrible. It's a good, good film. Good film. Good film. Bad song. Hell's Bells. Next up. So, if we've had that one, it means that it must be The World Is Not Enough. Yes. Mm. Correct. That, that, and was that, was that garbage? Was that Shirley it, from that Garbage? That wasn't that bad. Yes. Wow. <laughs> the world is not enough. Wow, wow, wow. I don't like this song. Yes, The World Is Not Enough. Uh, filmed on location uh, near my flat. Oh. Oh, there you go. That's yeah, actually what it says it. in the credits. Filmed on location <laughs> near Chris's flat. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they'd run out of money in the budget by that point. Where should we go? Should we go to the most exotic locations in the world? No, let's go to Greenwich. Um, next up, it is, it is, Greenwich is nice. Uh, who's next? Well, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is nice. and I'm going to go to bat for this because I do think like Die Another Day is much maligned and it doesn't really fit mm -hmm. the mold of a Bond song in that it's kind of Bond in Ibiza, but, uh, I actually don't mind it, you know, like I find it a bit of a, bit of a banger the occasionally. It goes hard. It does. It does. It goes hard. I like the song. I just don't think it necessarily works as a Bond song. Yeah, I, agree. I think that's fair. Yeah. I agree Die with that. Yeah. Another day. Yeah. But it gets really stuck in my head yeah. in a way that not all of it them does. do. So yeah. points for yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. All right. And that song, obviously, James, by... Madonna Ritchie. Her Majesty. Uh, yes, that she was known back then, I believe. Uh, all right, so Bronholm's gone. Here comes Daniel Our pain Craig. pain is nearly over. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Come on, I'm on. Oh, Casino Royale. Yes. Um, yes. By Chris Cornell. You know my name. Yes, du indeed. Du 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 you did know, know his name. His name. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> my favourite Bond film. My favourite Bond song. Oh, it's a, it's a great song. It is a great yeah. song. It, it's, its reputation has been restored over time. I remember at the, at the time when it came out, people were like, what the fuck is this? But um, <laughs> yeah. Also, just it. one of the best sort of transitions to Bond credits ever. The bullet, black and white, uh, yeah. Gun yep. barrel and then color. That Perfect. is yep. such a fucking good film. Yeah. It's in extraordinary. I'm really loving this, by the way. If someone can do a similar <laughs> question next week for the, we should takes up the entire podcast. We got hard out, but it's fine. Or the Police Academy series, or something like that. That would be great. Do you remember when we had like a little flurry of Mount Rushmore um, questions? Yes, I like the Mount I like Rushmore that. questions. Well, if that was Casino Royale, then this must be Quantum of Solace. I don't know what yes. the song is. I, do I don't know, know who much. sings it, and I don't know what is the name the, is. Oh, no, no, I do know who's... I don't remember the name of the song. It's totally but forgettable. was this the um, Alicia Keys and Jack White? Correct. The song is called Another Way to Die. Is it is it? not very good. Precisely. All right, so who is next? Amon did Casino Royale. Helen did Quantum of Solace. That means that Jimbo, you get... 
which is the third Craig, which is Sky Paul. <laughs> <laughs> when it crumbles. Apple crumbles. Yes. Which is Adele. Mm-hmm. Adele. Adele. The first uh, Bond song to win an Oscar. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Rightly or wrongly? Wrongly. Wrongly. How? how uh, that is insane. Why? That is f- it's fine. Is it? It's a perfectly Goldfinger fine song. Goldfinger and Goldeneye didn't win the Oscar? That is insane. Oh, that's insane. Oh, yeah, yes. no, but... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think we're on the same page. For a second, I thought you were going to bat for Skyfall. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> okay. Yes. No. I'm. I'm uh, yeah. I'm on board with that. There are much more deserving Bond Bond songs to win Oscars. I mean, the writing's on the wall for that. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell! I'm on Spectre by Samuel Smith. Samuel Smith. Yes. <laughs> I actually quite like this. I listened to it when we did that Bond song oh, ranking, and so I, I, it got really stuck in my head, and I find myself really couldn't so it if my life depended on it. <laughs> well, hopefully, it w- never will, James. You know, there would be an odd sore track. It would be a Bond villain such who made me do that, wouldn't it? But uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, such a such a terrible song. Top three worst Bond songs, <laughs> and of course, it won a fucking Oscar because now we're after Skyfall, we're in that sort of realm now mm. where mm. if you are a Bond film and you have a song no matter how bad the song is uh you will win an oscar which brings us neatly to <laughs> whoa i like this song I, I didn't think this is a bad I don't song think this is a bad song either but hmm. it's um it's no time to die and it's billy eilish there we go all right so i think we have successfully named all the bond films in order which is good now backwards <laughs> there's just no time to pod <laughs> There, there it is, is and no we're out of time. Pod. We're done. That's it for the Empire Podcast. Time. Look at that. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. Um, all right. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, you can slide into my DMs, as indeed uh, David Prowse's son, Michael, did. Uh, or you can reply to any of my tweets. Once you've stopped laughing, of course, I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. And yes, I'm still only taking questions on Twitter, mainly because I only have four followers in Blue Sky. And <laughs> Or you can wait for a panicked shout-out every now and again. Shall we have a guest? Yeah. Hurrah. Three guests this week. We have Wes Anderson, we have Chloe DeMont, and we have David Gordon Green. Who do you want? The power of Chris compels him. The power of Chris (laughs) compels you. The power of Chris compels you. That's a much better intro than what I wrote. Um, (laughs) Damn it, how do I go back and make it seem seamless? Uh, it is David Gordon Green, of course, who is the director of The Exorcist Believer, which is his latest horror movie classic reboot after he rebooted the Halloween trilogy to somewhat mixed effect, uh, you you could say, over the last few years. Uh, he is one of the most versatile directors in Hollywood, but he is focused on horror at the moment, and The Exorcist Believer is a lot like Halloween, uh, the his Halloween, uh, in that it ignores the previous sequels that came, um, which is probably a good thing with the Exorcists franchise, let's be honest. Uh, it ignores those sequels and brings back a legacy character, in this case, the legendary Ellen Burstyn, appearing as Chris McNeil for the first time in 50 years. It's been 50 years since William Friedkin's classic original. So, yes, indeed. Here is David Gordon Green talking to Ben Travis about the Exorcist Believer. Enjoy. I am thrilled to be joined on the Empire podcast by the director and co-writer of The Exorcist Believer, David Gordon Green. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Ben. Good. You have had an insanely busy few years. You have gone straight from your Halloween trilogy 
with Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends back to back. And like a year later, you were back with an Exorcist movie. Do you sleep? Do you just not like to not work? How how quickly does this start for you once Halloween ends ends? I love production and and the days where I get a team of people out in the world with cameras and sound equipment and actors is just that's that's what I'm living and breathing. So I can come up with ideas all day, try to map out how to um keep it going but i just love when when we've got we've got it lined up back to back that's just when i'm i'm the happiest I, i'm i've always had a job since i was 12 years old and started throwing newspapers and then working at movie theaters and i i i, I don't idle well as they say and uh i don't sleep much i got up at 2 30 this morning started writing on a project that um i just needed a palate cleanser so i started writing on a comedy that i've been contemplating and uh and yeah, then dive back into the next horror movie. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, how quickly after Halloween ends, which came out what last October, how quickly does it then begin that you're working on this? Is there a bit of overlap even, or is, have you got like a month's break? How does that work? I'll tell you what's even crazier is when we we'd, we'd started writing this movie after I'd finished the script for ends, but hadn't filmed it yet. And we opened a production office. And in that time, Ellen Burson agreed to be in the movie. Right. So I said, let's pause Halloween and let's start filming Exorcist. So in the same production office from Halloween Ends, we started this production with the same crew of Exorcist because I was afraid she'd change her mind. Right. So, <laughs> so I was like, the day she said yes, I said, what are you doing in September? <laughs> and then... um. And then we, so we started filming and then we shut down and filmed Halloween ends. And then we got back to it and finished the script and I wrote more for her and, and others. And, 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 um, we, yeah, so there was not much downtime at all. We, we dove right in and, um, you know, I love the idea of a movie every year and maybe a pilot or a TV commercial in between. And, um, so I, I try to keep it real busy and I have a great group of collaborators that make it super fun and, and I'm not I'm not the one <clears throat> that wants to um, sit and ponder a screenplay for three or four years like some of my brilliant uh, contemporaries. But uh, I, I just want to get in the action on the front lines. What What is that time for you then? What is it like? Put me in that headspace of you at the same time uh, trying to wrap up your own Halloween trilogy. Like you, You've taken on already one of the most iconic horror franchises. You have your own kind of little world within that. You are delivering the final chapter of that. You are also starting on your own continuation of one of the other most iconic horror franchises in the whole world. Is, is that pressure? Is that just fun for you? What is What's your brain like at that time? It is, um, you know, when I was a kid, I would go between my Star Wars action figures and my G.I. Joe action figures, and my Transformers, and just depending on which day I got to play with these characters and, and, and my Legos. And so I look at it like I have this incredible privilege in a very expensive and sophisticated form of me being in my backyard with my Jawas in the sandbox. And it's not that much different, but it's. So if if I was to take a deep breath and look around, I think the pressure would, would be impossible. So I try to just look forward as the opportunity and keep my perspective 
and and keep it keep the machine lean. And these prices are 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 not uh, astronomical budgets that 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 um, that are really daunting. They're efficient. We make them in pretty short shoots. And you know, you can. This is my lunch today: is sardines and crackers and nice. olive. So uh, and then some trail mix over there for dessert. So I just you know I gotta keep it keep it moving and um, always be thinking about what's next. I mean, it's interesting you say that you were up early this morning working on uh, a palate cleanser, something comedic, because your filmography is so varied. I, it, to me, it always springs to mind as one of the most varied filmographies out there, which I, I really respect. Uh, was that a difficult decision to go straight from one horror trilogy into another? Do you need that kind of switch up to do something a little bit different? What's that decision? Well, I am um, two things. One is it's a very different subgenre. Like it, it, Halloween's are, you know, the boogeyman's jumping out of the closet. What's a crazy new kill? How do we have some popcorn fun with this? It's research, and you have to read a eight hundred page book to understand this thing that you're trying to get about synchronized possession that doesn't make any sense to me. But uh, but there's these journals that you should read, and and so. There's a lot of research and more academic quality to it. It's a lot more clinical. And and honestly, it's just it you approach an exorcist movie like you do a drama. Um, like like uh Friedkin, at least Linda Blair tells me Friedkin ref- didn't like it being called a horror movie. He wanted to call it a theological thriller. And and that I stand by that and trying to trying to understand that the world has tagged Exorcist as the scariest movie ever made. So then it becomes the holy grail of horror movies, but it's not like horror movies right now. It doesn't. I mean, if you look at what's coming out now, there's the Nun two and this and Saw ten and and so on and so forth. It's so different from that approach that I, I wish there could be a way to clarify that from a marketing standpoint, so that we knew that this is a movie for moms and dads and college professors and people that don't go see horror movies. I think there's an appetite for a movie like this in their diet. I mean, what you say there about The Exorcist being a character drama, that absolutely rings true. Uh, And you had a lot of fun with the kills and all of that in your Halloween movies, but there were loads of ideas in your Halloween films as well. This Exorcist obviously is very ideas and character driven. Did that sensibility lend itself nicely to coming up with a continuation of the story? Well, it it helps make it personal. And I don't think I'm capable of making something that doesn't have some meaning to me. It is going back on what I was saying a little bit ago is like my hobby has become my career. And so you can either just be a goofball and bounce from one thing to the next. And I do to a degree, but um, um, I think you have to find a way to make these stories, these interactions, even this research mean something to you. And so it may be me spending the day with a priest of a, a religion I find really far out or somebody that is a spiritual advisor to me that is now going to take my phone call because she wrote this book that blew my mind and and she hears I'm working on this movie. So there's a reason for her to talk to me. And so there is a, a journey for me on a soulful level on top of a technical or artistic level that that I have to inject meaning. And then and then. I'm able to do these chapters of horror movies and then and then do a season of The Righteous Gemstones, our HBO comedy and things that like uh, 
in Pizza Hut commercials. I do a lot of Pizza Hut commercials too. Really? So <laughs> I, and I can just, I can have, I can have like, I can blow off steam in that way and then bring back in the, what I would hope to call meaningful horror. Have you ever been tempted to slip a single frame of a demonic face in the middle of a Pizza Hut commercial? Have you tried that? I have not tried it. I I, I, I should try to slip that into the pepperoni one of these days, yeah. <laughs> um, you're talking about getting to feed yourself by kind of doing the research and leaning into these projects. Uh, the dual possession thing. So you have two young characters in this who are possessed, Angela and Catherine. It's a double possession. It's a linked possession where did that idea come up? Is that something you found in the research? Was that the key to cracking what this could be? It strikes me as something that is both, by the sounds of it, linked to real research out there, but also kind of handy as an escalation of the horror franchise. Like there is, there are two possessions this time. It was, was there a bit of a, a eureka moment when you discovered that? Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure some one of your listeners have said will would tell me which movie has dealt with that before, but I, I don't. When I when I was reading a lot of books, that was one thing that jumped out at me. Like, I haven't seen that movie. At least I have not seen that movie. And and to me, it was a pathway toward these uh, a variety of religious perspectives. And that was something that was important to me to be able to take from the buffet of belief uh, various conflicts and inspirations that we might be able to pull. Um, so yeah, the synchronized possessions blew my mind and talking to this guy who had to in his account witnessed five, which you know, once you start talking about possession in this way, it is uh it becomes very subjective and and what is the power of suggestion, what is uh what is bullshit, what is <laughs> what what is true demonic entity you know these uh, non-physical entities and um so those those conversations are are had and fascinating and and the characters you meet on this journey are incredible i mean the title of the film is the exorcist believer and the film is in its own way this journey from i don't know skepticism or a lack of belief to being closer to belief has making this film changed your own personal relationship to that kind of thing well, I wouldn't say in a not in a not in a theological manuscript definitive re uh, religion type of way it hasn't, but it has made me more conscious about energy and vibration. Now, you know, I can get pretty hippie pretty quick on some of that stuff, but but I do feel like the experience of this movie has helped me dial into someone's behavior when you walk when you meet anybody encounter anybody you're walking in in the middle of their day and they're dealing with something and i'm very sensitive to that now in a way that i wasn't otherwise before i would make a judgment of like asshole nice guy gentleman whatever uh but i am i feel like i have a moment of pause on any encounter now where there's something that bounces from them to me back and forth a couple of times i can process and either turn around and go the other way or give them a hug or whatever it is that feels right to the balance of where my um, vibration is in chemistry with theirs. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for you making this film, I have to imagine it must have been a bit of a question for you of like, the original Exorcist is 50 years old. It was absolutely seismic. It terrified people. And yet so much has happened 
culturally, pop culturally, in that 50 years? Like, how uh, does this still have the power to shock in the way that it did? How do you approach those things? That's a whole conversation in there because the, the genre has evolved and the perception of what The Exorcist is, which it isn't necessarily, has evolved. It, it, you know, that is not a movie with jump scares other than maybe when Chris is in the attic, that's, that's a startling moment and a couple of flashes, but, um, of, of the demon, but it's not that movie. And and I think when you call it a horror movie, it can be, it can undermine a little bit of the significance of what it stirred up in the, uh, consciousness of culture in the moment that it, was out and and I'm not here to shock anybody beyond that. I, I I don't think anybody can because I think our culture, you and I included, are pretty desensitized to the horrific. Not just from movies and seeing a bunch of gross shit every now and then, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but headlines and and the adrenaline burst you get from anxiety and something that pisses you off is every day you open newspaper or, or click on whatever where whatever your source is. And there's something engineered to give you a burst of of upset, and so we're we are that, and uh, that's that's who we are. And so, how do you get some? Uh, for me, the objective becomes inviting a new horror, young horror enthusiastic audience that is conditioned to see a lot of the different things that are even in my diet. But I want them to see the movie, and I want people that love the purity and insanity that the original film was constructed in in 1973 and that generation so you're talking about and i want the taylor swift kids to come see this movie too because <laughs> she stole my release date um i do feel like between six, 16 and 60 is a sweet spot of this movie yeah um, and, I, and i'm trying to have enough of appeal and stimulus for the younger audience that may not want the slow burn of max von Sydow strutting around iraq which i personally love yeah. But, but 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 when we when we are sculpting this movie and I I I would test screen this movie every week for a different type of audience like let's show it to this group or this group or 10 people here 100 people there and 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 see what we were working with in our sculpture trying to make something that has mass appeal but but triggers everything that's meaningful to me in a personal level um of the conflict and conversation and inspiration that this movie might have to offer I love that you mentioned the Iraq sequence in the original Exorcist there, because that is one of my absolute favorite sequences from that film of just this immediate air of unease and something ancient and something, you know, out there in the world. And, and you have your version of this. You have a sequence in Haiti that opens the movie. Um, and it speaks to something that I think you really tap into with this film. I wanted to ask you about the sound design, because what you do through the course of the film is particularly using sound. You give us that sense of the, the cacophony and the chaos that is underpinning everyday life, that it feels like something is just present and waiting to burst out, that we are constantly on the edge of facing something relatively demonic just just beneath the surface that it's just there waiting uh, and you do that not just with sound but also with these kind of uh, quick bursts of things moving in front of the frame and these uh you know uh, quite jumpy edits w how are you planning for that in the moment when you're making this film is that the effect that you're going for or is that just the way i'm receiving it no it's 100 percent the effect i'm just endlessly inspired by the the progressive editing in that movie and the sound design of the original film and those jarring cuts from 
the last frame of a word to the next scene with a hard sound of a subway blasting by. Um, so that movie has brilliant examples of that. And, and, and I, so I studied that pretty extensively. And then also a lot of David Lynch movies, you know, I, I, I cite the very misunderstood or lost treasure of lost highway as a movie with unbelievable sound design and, and eerie unsettling room tones and things that just get under your skin and you don't know why they work on a subconscious level. And, 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 and I, and I work with composers, David Wingo and Amana Bassi. David Wingo, I've known since I was eight years old. And we were, you know, we were going to see Fire Walk With Me in the theater together and talking about how fucked up it was. And 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 so now he's a composer that's working to blur the line between sound design and, and music. And Amana Bassi is this amazing experimental musician. And so we got together and those guys just jamming on experimental ways to look at how to utilize sound uh, and music in the movie was really profound for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to ask about that because uh, the experience of seeing this, I think we're at different ages, but I think you must have been in a similar position to me where I never got to experience The Exorcist as it was received at the time. Whether people label it as a horror movie or not, it did scare the absolute shit out of people and people were terrified in the, in the cinema. And I never got that experience because by the time I watched it, I'd seen all the moments on Channel 4's 100 Greatest Horror Moments, but I've had other cinema experiences that I've left and thought, I think that must be what people felt watching The Exorcist for the first time. I think the one that stands out most for me is watching The Witch and just feeling genuine, complete unease and dread of what was going to come next. What was that film for you that gave you the feeling of terror that you imagine people must have felt at the time watching The Exorcist in 1973? Interesting. So you're talking about like a theatrical experience that I might have seen in its day. Yeah, that really shook you in a way that must have shaken people in in the way that they saw The Exorcist. Wow, um, I'm trying to think of a theatrical experience because most of my night because I was a uh, I grew up in a very strict household and I was a naughty boy and would always sneak horror movies <laughs> that I wasn't. So then those I got really fucked up by that by a number of those experiences. I'm trying to think of the movie in oh 100. I know what it was. It was Wild at Heart. It, it was right. You know, David Lynch is just always a dude that knows how to push buttons, right? And 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 brilliantly so. But it and it was it wasn't even it was Willem Dafoe's teeth in that movie that like something about every smile of that character was just too much. And I did I, I walked out of the theater, I was like, I'm not ready. I gotta I gotta I'll do it again on another day. And so I had to go and and take a deep breath and figure out because that dude's just the king of making people uncomfortable in a theater. And I was not ready for that one and i did go back and and i now i love the movie like so many of his films but um that movie was one that i wasn't ready i wasn't equipped to handle it amazing thank you so much david gordon green thrilled to have you on the podcast thank you so much all right so that was david gordon green we'll be talking about the exorcist believer later in the show but now we have movie news. And do we have actual movie news to Not talk about this week? Not a lot of it, this... to be honest. Really? Yeah. So they're still kind of gearing up after the writer strike uh, was was avoided. Well, not avoided, but cancelled. Um, but the actor strike is still on. So 
Yeah, there really hasn't been much this week. I mean, the the most exciting stuff has been really trailers. Uh, we got a trailer for Silent Night. Now, as you know, I'm interested in Christmas hmm. movies. And <laughs> having become a diehard For All Mankind fan, I'm now also interested in Joel Kinnaman. After spending years quite happily not being interested in him after that Robocop film. I was tough on Joel Kinnaman, tough on the causes of Joel Kinnaman mm. for a long, long time. And Robocop did have a lot to do mm. with it. He was good in The Killing, though, in the US remake of The Killing. I enjoyed him in that with Mira right. Enos. And he was good in that as well. So I always thought, oh, maybe he's just good on TV. Um, but I'm willing now to open my heart and and allow him to be in a Christmas movie a Christmas action miracle. shootout from John Woo. Can I uh, just take a second here to do a scream of joy? Please. Ah, John Woo's <laughs> back! Yay! I love John Woo. He's one of my favorite Someone. directors. I wrote my university dissertation on John Woo and the Hong Kong action cinema. I'm surprised he's bad because he didn't mention it in any of his Christmas cards <laughs> that he sent me that he was going back and making another film. So, so that's, I've never that's interviewed John Woo. And uh, I'm, I'm going to say this right now. If I don't get to interview him for this movie, then heads will roll. So I'm just going to double fly. fly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love John Woo. He is one of the greatest action directors of all time of all time and uh this is very very exciting he's trying to put me off by having joel kinnaman in his movie but you can't <laughs> i'm telling you for all mankind man it's going to turn you around he was also really good joel kinnaman in the most recent Su- suicide squad film i developed a hiccup um so <laughs> that's exactly what you want on a uh, podcast it's <laughs> just gonna have to be i tried to just drink a whole lot of water oh, no, this is fun <laughs> that has not helped <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is staying in the podcast. What did this you is do? Now a How thing. did you have a hiccup? What did you do? I was coughing, and I don't know. Like, I finished coughing. You coughed yourself into so. a hiccup. Oh my gosh, this is really oh, wow. This is um, interesting. <laughs> this is this is brilliant. I love that you're calling it hiccup singular. That's that's what's really amusing me. I'll be honest. Amon has more hiccups than the How to Train Your Dragon franchise. <laughs> hey. <Do> you know, <laughs> it, um, it reminds me of that uh, joke in The Simpsons where they cut to a news report about a man who's had hiccups for four years and he's just going, kill me, <laughs> kill me. <laughs> uh, so before Amon expired, quite frankly, um, he was making the point that Joel Kinnaman is very good, particularly in the uh, most recent Suicide Squad movie. Yes. And yes, that, that did help. A little bit. And this trailer looks awesome. Uh, I watched it uh, yesterday and had a whirl of a time. So... <laughs> have we... <laughs> have we explained what it's about yet? Yes. So he's, he basically plays a, a man, a father, who is, whose son is killed in a drive-by shooting. And he is also rendered voiceless by his injuries. He loses his ability to speak. So his language, I suppose, becomes the language of violence as he swears bloody revenge on all those responsible. By the way, I think Amon's just died. <laughs> so we're going to move on. Well, he had a good run. He had a good run. He did. I was going to say we'd have a minute silence, but I've got a heart out. So let's do three seconds silence for Amon. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yes. No. This looks like uh, this is like John Wick, but at Christmas. I mean, I'm I I, I could not I could not want anything <laughs> yeah. more. That's yeah. that's just all I need in life. Yes. Uh, I am so excited. John John Woo is back, back, back. Oh my god. Uh, there is Helen. Mm. You're absolutely right. Yeah. No news <laughs> whatsoever. Listen, I did see something uh, on Twitter the other day. Apparently. 
Paramount have unveiled Mean Girls and put it on TikTok in 23 different parts. What, yes. what kind of madness is this? I don't like <laughs> it. This is too much madness to fit into one text. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> so yesterday, October 3rd, we're recording this on Wednesday, which is unusual for the podcast, but again, scheduling shenanigans. Yesterday was apparently, and I don't know who, who decreed this, Mean Girls Day? Yes, because in it's mentioned yeah. in the film, the date is mentioned in the film, and it's become oh. kind of a joke that people okay. reference it on October 3rd. Stop trying to make Mean Girls Day happen. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But it has happened. Don't That's they, the isn't point. there a date for the new Mean Girls now? As I recall, I want to say it's January. It, uh, it's a January date. It's getting a theatrical release now as well. Which one? Okay. The the essentially the, the new Mean Girls. Is that film. A, not a musical? Mm. I could have sworn they were doing a thing. Let me Google it and make sure that it's right. See, often what happens is we we do the podcast on a Thursday, and more movie news has come out by this point, and usually the movie news section isn't just us trying to stop him on dying uh, through hiccuping, <laughs> talking about the one trailer that came out, and then kind of arguing amongst yourselves about whether there's a new Mean Girls movie. Um, no, it is. The, it, we are thinking of the same one. Yeah, it is the same wow. one that's in January, but it's, yeah, it will be, it will be slightly more tuneful. Is it a musical, Jimbo? It is a musical, and the reason I know this is because it's called Mean Girls, colon, the musical. So, yeah. It's exciting. That is... Yeah, I did not know it was a musical. Now I do. The title should have given it away, but it didn't. Uh, and, and here we are. Cool. That's good. All right, I've got a bit of news. It's not really news, but I'm going to share it anyway. So, you know, Werner Herzog yes. has written a memoir. It's called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. But the news here is that Werner Herzog, the man himself, has recorded the entirety oh. of the audiobook version. And for that alone, I think this is now an essential... Oh, yes, very much so. Make it happen. Make sure you have a nice libation in your hand when you're yes. listening to it. But uh, yeah, that's exciting. That sounds fun. Slash yeah. terrifying. <laughs> having having interviewed Werner Herzog, I hope it's entirely about Jack Reacher. Yes, the Zeds. <laughs> <laughs> and you can people are flicking through it, going, "All right, where's a bit about Fitzcarraldo? Where's a bit about how Klaus Kinski was an absolute fucking psychopath?" And it's all about Jack Reacher. Yeah, I must admit, I was surprised when I heard that he was going to play Jack Reacher because I turned into Arnold again. But <laughs> he went a bit—he went, he went a bit French a bit and then French. a bit Arnold there. Hello, hello, <laughs> because I always saw Jack Reacher as a hello. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that is—I'm very confused. I now. imagine Werner Herzog has yeah. very, very strident views about how big Jack Reacher should be. Well, if he did have such strident views, he probably wouldn't have been in the film with Tom Cruise, now would he? Yeah, but maybe he was trying to take it apart from within. Ah, maybe. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Everything is clearer now. All right. Anything else, please? Jesus. Honestly, I feel like we just don't bother. Like there, there are there are some other trailers. There's a, a new, extremely lengthy trailer for All the Light We Cannot See. Um, so for anyone who hasn't read the book, presumably they've managed to fit all the spoilers in the trailer so you can have the same experience as, as one of the fans of the book because it was a massive bestseller and around for a while. But that's... Um, that's quite cool. A World War II drama, obviously, it's got um, Mark Ruffalo and some other people also in it. Um, and Leave the World Behind. Uh, people got quite excited about this trailer this week. This is a Netflix thriller, but it's Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke oh. as a couple who are on holiday in this remote yes. house when Mahershala Ali, the owner of the house, or at least that's what he tells them, um, and his 
daughter, I think, uh, turn up and say, oh, by the way, the world's ending. There's a sort of cyber crash of everything. Uh, money means nothing. You know, all your smart, everything doesn't up work anymore. Up is down, anymore. down is up. Dogs and cats living Dogs together. Dogs and cats mass living together. Yeah, it, mass hysteria. So uh, this is directed and written by Sam Esmail um, of Mr. Robot fame. So, you know. This looks great, I have uh, to looks say. Interesting. This yeah. is, you know, obviously there's a tinge, a touch of cabin in the woods about it, but uh but uh, it, there's enough nightmarish imagery in here to make you think that it's not just a cyber attack. There's other mm. shit going on here as well. Amon, are you back? I'm I'm still here. I'm still hiccuping, but um, you know, life goes on. <laughs> We've run out of movie news, quite frankly. I think this we is, just move on. We don't have shocking. all there's yeah. nothing. Let's go into the reviews. And I can spend more time on Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to give up on the movie news section so early. It just feels. It feels like there's got to be more. Should we just make some shit up? Kevin Feige will play himself in Avengers: Secret Wars. There you go. Fantastic. Yeah, I believe it. There you go. <laughs> Happy days. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. Um, hopefully, hopefully something seismic will happen overnight. And by that, I don't mean like you know. Bad things. Bad things. You mean good things. I mean good things, like great big announcements, like maybe Kevin Feige is going to play himself in Avengers Secret Wars. Who knows? Stuff like that. Um, and if so, maybe we'll be able to slide back in here and re-record something real quick. Uh, if not, then Hollywood, frankly, get your shit together. You've had over a week since the writer's strike stopped. So come on, what are we doing? Oh, Akila Cooper. Akila Cooper, who's the writer of The Nun. The Nun 2, rather. And, and Megan. Uh, and Malignant. She has, uh, she sold the script. The first auction since the WGA strike ended, she sold the script or is attached to write a script called It's Over. It's based on a short story by Jack Fallman. And um, I don't know anything else about it. But she's pretty cool. I mean, obviously, I, mean, I kind of feel at this point in her career, presumably, she's sold, sold a script isn't even news. That's just like a day ending and why. But um, but yeah, good to know that um, good writers are able to get back to work now. And uh, fingers crossed the actors will not be too far behind. Yes, indeed. Uh, all right. Should we have another guest? Let's yes, And our movie news misery. Uh, who do we want? We want, uh, you know what? Let's, let's leave Wes Anderson for the end of the show. And let's have Chloe DeMont, who is the director of Fair Play, which is a very slick and hard-hitting thriller about the dynamic between a couple uh, who are a high-powered couple of sorts in a New York hedge fund. It stars Phoebe Dynafor and Alden Ehrenreich as that couple. Emily is promoted above him at work and that begins to undermine a relationship and it goes in some very, very dark places indeed. This is Chloe DeMont's directorial debut. She wrote and directed it as well. A good job she does too, as we'll discuss in the review section in just a tick. But first... You're going to hear the interview she recorded this week on Zoom with our very own Beth Webb, making her first appearance on the podcast for quite a while. Enjoy. This is a very stressful film, <laughs> I found. Yeah. Um, I would love to know what came first in the story for you. Was it uh, the relationship? Was it the workplace? Like, what was that kind of initial kernel? Um, uh, For me, it was... Um, mm, the idea that a woman gets promoted over her male partner and her first reaction isn't excitement, it's fear. Um, and how that kind of comments on how much hold these ingrained power dynamics still have over us today, you know, even in progressive cities and even with progressive men. Um, and, um, you know, I think 
putting them and then in the same field and the same office just escalates that tension on another level that I thought was exciting um, as like a filmmaker and a dramatist and a storyteller, you know, but, but also my own personal experiences, you know, I've, uh, I've mostly uh, been in relationships with men that I've, you know, that I've also worked with. And, and, uh, you know, I think that, I think that, you know, there is inherently a competition there and there is inherently a jealousy there. But the biggest difference is that when, you know, it's, from a woman's perspective, yeah, she can be competitive and jealous of her male partner if he's succeeding, but she's not threatened, you know, mm-hmm. whereas on the other, when it's the other way around, if a woman's succeeding over a man, he feels threatened by it. It's like somehow her accomplishment is a poor reflection of his self-worth, you know, and and this idea that women being big make men feel small, how how much that that is still very much a reality, you know, and, 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 um, and uh, it's just a comment on where we're at as a society, you know, where I think we're, we're in some ways a crisis of masculinity and 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 uh, <laughs> all over the world in many ways, because it's 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 the first time that, that girls are surpassing boys in school, uh, that, that women are surpassing men in the workplace in many different fields and and uh, that women are making more money, you know, than their male partners. And and uh, and so we're it's the first time we're really having to face that power flip in ways that we're not prepared for. And I mean, aside from, as you say, this, how sort of the impact that this has on Phoebe's character and, and this feeling of fear, like why why is that interesting to you that we are now at this kind of apex where things are seem to be changing? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I mean, it's, it's like how, because we still don't know how to talk about it, you know, and yeah. the reason why we don't know how to talk about it is because we can't even acknowledge that that's what's really going on. You know, even in my own experiences, I, neither one of, this was always an unspoken feeling that both of us, you know, had and, and, um, and this was in many of my relationships, it was an unspoken feeling, you know, it was, it was, it's a subject matter that just feels off limits you know, that no one wants to talk about because it's like on my hand, I didn't even want to acknowledge it because what would that say about me and my choice of partner? If I was with a man who was threatened by me, that would make me look bad, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like this idea of acknowledging that was, was, was just as scary as, as, as acknowledging it, you know, to the, to the other person. And, and so I think it's something that just gets very much pushed under the rug and it becomes insidious, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and because of that, it, it that aggression and tension comes out in really unexpected, poisonous ways. You know, the anything from from subtle, passive aggressive comments to to more explicit behaviors. And I think I would say the biggest thing is that we normalize it. We normalize these things. We normalize this behavior. We normalize women normalize undermining themselves to protect the male ego, to protect their relationships. You know, um, we normalize. Uh, dealing with those passive aggressive comments, you know, we, we just normalized the whole thing in a way that, that made me want to sound the alarm and say, this is actually an emotionally terrorizing situation. You know, uh, this is not okay. And, uh, we need to talk about it. Yeah. It's certainly, it certainly is a cautionary tale. Um, and you speak about this, this kind of spectrum of awfulness, this like spectrum of aggression that, as you say, it kind of starts with an odd comment here and odd comment there an odd mm-hmm. shift that's noticeable and it ends with violence yeah. and yeah. like a sickness and hurt like you've spoken about personal experience but I wondered what else was feeding into this spectrum of awfulness were you speaking to other women I noticed you're saying we quite a lot and uh 
were you interviewing people? Was it just people that you happen to know where things like this have happened as well as to yourself? I mean, yeah, I think I've seen it. I've seen it in, in, you know, my friends' relationships. I mean, I most of my female friends make more money than their male partners. So I, you know, I and um, I think that there's a, you feel the tension, you know, even though they're not talking about it either. I think that's the other thing. They don't want to admit that there are those that there are some tensions in their relationships because of it, you know, and I, but you, you, you feel it, you feel it in, in certain jokes that are made at a dinner table, you know, uh, you, you see the insecurity, the kind of male fragility come through in a way that, that is clearly coming from that place. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's uncomfortable, you know, it's incredibly uncomfortable and, 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 um, but for me, it's like still like the biggest thing is that, is that it's something that we're all afraid to talk about, which is why I made the movie. You know, this was this was something that I couldn't confront in my own life. So I wanted to put it on screen to to kind of say that to kind of yeah sound the alarm and then say this is, you know, it's not getting any better. I think, it, you know, in many ways it's getting worse because of the current climate, because we're, we're all trying to pretend that we're more evolved and progressive than we actually are. Yeah. You know. And that, uh, and that many of us are still caught, you know, between wanting to adhere to a modern feminist society, but still having been raised on traditional ideas of gender roles and traditional ideas of masculinity. And I think it, it's 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 that intersection that's where the conflict is, is, is the struggle between those two things, you know, the struggle between genuinely, you know, between having male partners that genuinely support us, you know, and, and, and champion us and want us to succeed, but also still have this feeling like they need to get there first, or they need to be one step ahead to feel like a man. Yeah. Yeah. And it is something, as you say, that is universal. It's happened to your friends. It's happened, you know, it happens across multi-industries. What was it about setting it in a hedge fund firm in that specific industry, in that specific city that was important to you? Um, I felt like there were a lot of uh, parallels to uh, finance, to film and TV industry, you know, just the high stakes nature of it. The fact that there's a lot of money on the table that, it, you know, if, if you if you, for example, if you're in, you know, like when I've been directing in television, if, if you have 10 hours to shoot, say, five scenes and if you don't shoot those five scenes you cost the production hundreds of thousands of dollars you know and then, and then how where do you put that on another day and the pressure of that you know the high stakes nature of that the fact that you know you will cost you know people will lose money or you know we'll, we'll, it'll it'll cost extra money um uh the toll that takes on you you know and on your psyche and and that kind of pressure working in those high stakes environment all the time you know how that that feeds into the toxicity of a relationship if it's already a toxic relationship how the toxicity of a relationship feeds into the toxicity of a work environment you know it kind of becomes this this vicious cycle but it felt like um um, my experience kind of in that world felt very similar to to what my friends have experienced in, in finance so it felt like a good parallel and a good place that i could organically kind of write from and organically tap into yeah and it, in terms of the relationship, I mean, it goes to these dark and awful places, but it's at times believably so. There's such an electricity between the pair of them. I mean, they have to be in that place for it to go to the bad place, you know, in the in as their trajectory goes. And it's a really is a kind of trajectory that lives and dies by the chemistry between Phoebe yes. and Alden. Yeah. What was their first meet like? Um, I think it was great. You know, it was, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, 
I think that you can't, you can build chemistry, but you can't like, you either have it or you don't, you know? Yeah. So I think like, it's like when they first got in the room, I, I believe them as a couple. I, you know, they, there was a certain chemistry there that I knew that we could build off of. And so I think that that, that was the most exciting thing, knowing that, that this was a relationship that, that, that felt, that felt real and felt exciting to watch. What, what was it about them both individually? Because Phoebe, I feel like we tread some of that territory, definitely like the erotic nature of it with Bridgerton. I've never seen this side of Olden before. So what was it that they were bringing into that room where you instantly thought that's that's a believable couple? Um, I mean, um, I think that they were both able to tap into the roles and in, in those characters, you know, and, 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 uh, and connect with them, you know, on, on such a deep level that it, that it made it authentic, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, um, because they're just, it's just kudos to them as actors. They can, they can, I really think that those are two actors that can dive into any character in any situation and make it, make it, um, make it relatable and make it organic. And, and, um, and, um, and, uh, yeah, so I think it starts from that. They're just the power of their craft, you know, and, and tapping into, to that i also feel like you know on some level it's like a phoebe definitely related to, to emily in many ways you know she she she's definitely felt those experiences before and and um and so uh, she was able you know she really understood the character on on a very profound profound painful level you know i would say and and uh, and alden he he grew up with a lot of those types of guys so he he knew you know he he, he he's very well aware of, of those types of those types of men and and uh, you know a lot of it, we we both went to NYU together. You know we um, we just uh, we 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 were both surrounded by those types of guys. You know, and, and and guys that are feeling you know that are pretty entitled men. You know that believe yeah. that they deserve something, but actually you know are unable to face the harsh truth, which is they're just mediocre. You know. But, <laughs> No, it's true. It's almost, I know. It's almost, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, but it's almost worse than them just being bad at their jobs. The fact that you know that they, that that it's like, oh no, actually, they're just average. Yeah. You know? and, and the inability for for men, especially of this generation, you know, where everyone thinks they're special, you know, to 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 be faced with the the, the painful truth that no, they're they're just fucking average. You know, it's it's it, it's um it's shattering for them. I'm thinking about this scene specifically in the film where. Odin's character he goes in and thinks he's got his big shot and he's got his big platform and it makes absolutely no difference mm-hmm. there's there's real power to that um I think um and there was some improvisation involved is that right they they sort of put their own little touches to the relationship in places um so the way we kind of went about it I would say the script was pretty we stuck to the script I would say um pretty closely but you know once I felt like I got what was on the page then I would give them a free take and I would say, you know, and, and, but I would say that free take wasn't like totally go off a of left field. That free <laughs> yeah. take was like, you know, Alden would stick to the script about 75%, but then he'd throw in a line here or there, you know, or he, he'd try some, a different action, you know, or something, yeah. you know, and I think just the idea of me saying have a free one freed him up to sometimes even just bring what was on the page in a different way, you know, with a new yeah. light, a new twist. And I think, I think there, there is something about that when you give actors just the freedom by saying, you know, do whatever you want. They'll, yeah, we still stayed pretty much um, in line with what was already there, but, but there, 
it just it, it gives it releases the, an energy in a way that that can be quite exciting. Um, a character I wanted to touch on who is like largely not on screen for a lot of it, but feels like their own kind of standalone villain yeah. is um, Emily's mother who we hear (laughs) so for for listeners this is um uh there's a few very tense phone calls um and and she just oh she just is the the mother from hell to for whatever (laughs) word I just like I'd love to know where that aspect of the story came from because it's its own little kind of microcosm of kind of stress um yeah, I mean, well, I, I set out to create this this pressure cooker thriller and this kind of ticking time bomb. So I think as we're getting to that point in the film, you know, I think the mother, well, first of all, what the mother represents is, is just, an, first of all, a reminder of what she should be feeling, you know, but isn't feeling. So her mother is a reminder of, you know, on paper, she has everything she's ever worked for. You know, she has the promotion. She has the job she ever wanted. She's engaged, you know, she's she's engaged to the man she loves, you know, like she should be on top of the world and feeling on top of the world. And yet she's never felt more afraid. And I think like the mother is a reminder of of that juxtaposition, you know, and and um, and uh, and something that I think can be more anxiety inducing when you have when you're in these experiences. Right. And you're feeling these things that you can't vocalize. Right. These these fears that you can't vocalize. When someone comes up to you and is like, oh, my God, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? You're doing, you know, and and they have no idea what you're emotionally feeling inside. It can be more anxiety inducing when you have that that um, that extra voice just just in your face about how great are you feeling? And you're like, you have no idea what I'm feeling. You have no idea. You know what I mean? So I think it's 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 um it's a reflection of that, but it's also an anxiety inducing element, you know, and, and another factor in in the the ticking time bomb of something that becomes just incredibly excruciating and untenable. Um, and uh, and then especially when you get to the phone call part, when when Luke, when they have right before their big blowout fight, you know, like that was just another added layer of, OK, we're going to celebrate you. We're going to celebrate your engagement and at the worst possible time. You know, it's just like um it's uh it just added to to that to that that moment where the balloon pops you know the the tension just just explodes and and uh and uh yeah it just it just felt like um i wanted to create this this skin crawling <laughs> slowly simmering anxiety attack feeling you know in the film and the mother was just a great way an element you know to layer that in yeah very effective <laughs> um it's obviously played a few festivals so far, which has been wonderful. I wondered what some of the best reactions have been to the film that you've seen. Um, I would say from from the female standpoint, I've had women come up to me saying they've never felt more seen than this film. I've had women write me lengthy emails and letters, you know, talking about their own experiences in this situation, talking about how they've been dating. You know, they were dating their coworkers and and uh, and uh, you know and and what their success you know cost in their relationship what they you know felt how they felt like they've had to undermine themselves in many ways so i mean you know on on one level it, it's 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 um it's just i feel very touched you mm-hmm. know that that this film um is both deeply personal but actually you know incredibly universal and that and that so many women relate to this on so many different levels and in many ways, I feel like that makes everyone feel less alone, 
You know, I think that that's the power of art and that's the power of art that you connect to is that mm. you feel like somewhere out there, someone understands something that I haven't been able to voice. And that makes you feel less isolated and less alone. Cause I think that in these experiences specifically, I felt quite isolated, you know, and quite alone. And, and when I was experiencing this, you know, throughout my life, you know, over and over again, you know, because it was something that I was afraid to talk about. So I think on that level, it's, it's incredibly touching, you know, on the other end of it, you know, I've had, I've had, I've seen, I've witnessed groups of older men just really start to talk about things that I feel like they've been afraid to talk about or, or acknowledge and, and, uh, and, uh, and that's, that feels like this film is in many ways unlocked something inside men that they feel like they can release and kind mm -hmm. of let go of and, and, and be honest about, you know, and I think that, I think that that's, that's great and healthy and exciting to see men talking to each other, you know, about, about the way that they're raised about, you know, uh, certain, their, their behavior in certain, you know, um, in certain relationships and the role that they've played um, on some level with this. And, and uh, so I think that that's, um, I set out to create a film that starts conversation and debate. So I think it's exciting. I've also seen couples like come out of this movie, just start <laughs> fucking fighting. <laughs> you know? but, uh, that's also what this movie is supposed to do. It's like, you know, it's a, uh, uh, yeah, there might be some breakups coming out of this film and that's okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's uh, oddly heartening to see. <laughs> um, amazing. I think that's us for time, but Chloe, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me. Just, just a really important film and I'm really pleased I could, I could speak to you about it today. So thank you so much. Oh no, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Okay, so that was Chloe DeMont, and that's barrel straight into the reviews section of the show. Biggest film out this week, I would say, is The Exorcist Believer, but let's talk about Fair Play first of all. Jimbo, Fair Play to Fair Play? It is indeed. Fair, fair Play, Fair Play, Chris, <laughs> Fair Play. Uh, I mean, you've already heard a fair bit about this from Chloe DeMont herself. Uh, this is She's written and directed this, and it does take place in the cutthroat world of finance, where apparently everyone's a raging bellend. Uh, so if anyone's ever watched, I mean, Sophie mentions this in the review, the um, uh, the TV show Industry kind of covers this quite well. It's very fertile grounds on the BBC. Uh, but uh, this essentially sees a couple, Emily and Luke, played by Phoebe Dynever from Bridgerton and Alden Ehrenreich from Solo, but we don't talk about that. Uh, and they are dating against company policy. They are both on a level. They are both analysts at this sort of bank hedge fund financial thing. I, I'm not good at balancing my own checkbook, so I don't know quite what this entity <laughs> is. But um, uh, everything's kind of going well. They're checkbook. engaged. <laughs> You still use a checkbook. <laughs> there you go. See, that's where I'm going wrong. Uh, there is, they get engaged quite early on. And, and I guarantee you this, if nothing else from this film sticks with you, the engagement scene in this will never, ever, ever leave you. It is unconventional to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, but essentially they're, they're, they're working together until someone above them leaves creating a vacuum. Luke thinks he's going to get the job. It doesn't. It goes to Emily, who quite obviously is much, much, much better at her job than mm -hmm. he is. Unfortunately, then it becomes a kind of a twisted tale of male entitlement and gender politics in the workplace. It's a very, very masculine environment. This bank is, as you might imagine. Um, she has to put up with an awful lot of shit, but she's also clearly very, very good at what she does. And it explores how she adjusts to this new position where she's essentially managing her secret fiancé and how he deals with the fact that he is – 
frankly, a raging boredom ball of entitlement and mediocrity, while also being a man uh, and expecting things to fall into his lap. So their relationship starts to spiral. It all gets quite unpleasant and nasty and fraught as this goes along. It's actually really, really gripping. It kind of sets out early on as a kind of old school 90s style erotic thriller, except the eroticism fades away very, very quickly. And there's not so much of the nookie when you get to the second half of this. There's a little bit of it, but uh, but it kind of suddenly takes a backseat. And the only thing I would say about this is, is as it goes along, it really, really works. It becomes very uncomfortable. It becomes quite difficult to watch at times. It's extremely stressful. And then it, it, at the final yard, it maybe just gets a little bit daft. It goes a little bit too far. I think it could have been reined in just a touch to keep it believable. So I wasn't 100% on board with the final act. But other than that, I thought it was a very assured debut. I thought, you know, of all of them, Alden Ehrenreich is fine in this. He kind of goes down this meninist route with this self-help guru he finds online. Uh, but Phoebe Dynevo is is absolutely fantastic in this. She plays it really, really well. This kind of slightly frazzled, clearly very competent, really struggling to kind of do the emotional heavy lifting of keeping their relationship together while keeping her job together, while dealing with these awful misogynistic people around her in the workplace. And also this sleep-deprived state, like she's getting up very early every morning, so she really is coming apart at the seams. Uh, so she's she's absolutely radiant in this. Yeah. Um, it's really, really good. But um, yeah, so good, good film. Good film. I think we gave it four stars. We did. I really, really liked this uh, for a lot of the reasons you say um i don't watch bridgerton so i didn't know much about phoebe dynavor uh, before this film uh, she is phenomenal um i really can't wait to see what she goes on and does after this there's a, such a balance between fierceness and vulnerability that she displays and the amazing thing about this film is that so much of what is uh, said between emily and luke so much of their feelings are said in undertone, uh, but they're always very, very clearly sort of shown. You, you, you get what the director was going for in terms of what people are actually saying in the moment. And the production design, I think, helps with that. The office that they're in, it's all just uh, glass walls. So there's no privacy. Everyone can see everyone at every moment. And the, the, what, the, the stuff that the director, Chloe DeMont, gets out of that in terms of how she positions her camera and the way she moves it is really, really clever. Um, I keep going back and forth on the finale because I get what she was going for. And I think, especially for Emily as a character, it's a moment that comes through and is needed and is necessary. Exactly how they get to that point, I'm still going back and forth on whether that kind of worked for me. But on the whole, I think this is a really really strong debut. You can add it to the pile of really great debuts that we've had this year. Um, I'm excited to see what Chloe goes on to do next. Phoebe Dynavor, by the way, I discovered this just last night, is the daughter of Sally Dynavor, a.k.a. Nepo baby! Formerly <laughs> Sally Whittaker, who plays Sally Webster on Coronation Street and has done for the last 30 years. So, you know, Kevin, Kevin and Sally, I don't know, I haven't watched Carney in years, so I don't know whether they're still together. Uh, but Kevin and Sally, Kevin, you know, the mechanic down the, down the road. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's her daughter. Wow. Helen, Helen, pretending to sound <laughs> impressed there. I don't watch Cory Man. I don't, I don't have anything to tell you. Tell me more about famous children of actors <laughs> who are in Coronation Street. Well, I'm glad you asked, Helen, because obviously there's Linus Roach, who is the son of William Roach. Who, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Hard out, Chris. Hard out. Oh, my word. Um, all right, four stars then for fair play. It is terrific. Hell's Bells. 
Yeah. Should we talk about Michael Caine? Shall we talk oh, about yeah. Michael Caine, whose potentially last film is in cinemas this week, and it's called The Great Escaper. Yeah, this is an interesting film. So it's Mike. It's very much Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson uh, for a start, and it's directed by Oliver Parker. Um, and it's kind of been sold as another one of these inspirational British cheeky chappy kind of. Um, you know, your granny great. goes on a Saturday afternoon to see this mm. as her one cinema outing for the month. You know, basically, you think it's going to be, oh, look, here's the guy who. This is the based on the true story of the guy who went to join the D-Day celebrations, the 70th anniversary of D-Day in what was it, 2014. Um, he basically just walked out of his nursing home and got on a ferry and went to join his his former you know his fellow troops yeah and that it lends itself to another one of these oh look isn't everybody lovely you know don't don't old people have nice adventures um but actually it tries to do something i think a little bit more interesting and a little bit different and it's basically a story about aging so michael Caine plays this guy bernie and glenda jackson is his work wife uh Rene, they call her she's irene i think and their younger selves are played uh, laura marcus plays the younger version of her and will F- fletcher plays the young version of him so there are some sort of flashbacks to the war but generally speaking this is the story about uh getting old and about not being able to do things as easily anymore and about getting sick and having to take lots of pills and facing death basically oh good. and that's not really what i expect but look credit where it's due that's more interesting than the same old calendar girls nonsense that we've seen a million times so it's at least trying to do something different and it is anchored by two genuinely great performances from obviously michael kane but particularly i thought glenda jackson who just blows everybody else off the screen and this this is her last movie this is her last movie yes the the the, the scuttlebutt is that michael kane is retiring that this is his last movie but and they're both Jackson playing ninety-year-olds yeah. convincingly at this point, you know. So, so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be amazing. I mean, he's still clearly sharp as a tack, but it's got to be a strain making a movie like this. Um, anyway, so it, it is it is you know it does have the element of kind of nice people doing their best, but it is a little bit more ambitious than that. And while I don't think that the two halves always fit brilliantly together, because I think it's it's trying to have its cake and eat it too a little bit in terms of being a bit daring and pushing the envelope a little bit, but still being comforting and Sunday tea time about the whole thing. So it doesn't always hang together, but because of those really good performances, I think it is still pretty interesting. So yeah, I like this way, way, way more than I expected to. I thought it was going to be a real trial, but um, yeah, we gave it four out of five. Fantastic. Sounds great. I'll be honest, um, you know, I thought this was going to be fairly middle of the road. Yeah, uh, so did I, 100%. Yeah, excited. Come for the final performances from Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson. Stay for the futility of life. <laughs> Being not futility, home. not futility, but no. brevity of life, you know? Brevity. Oh, We're not going to be here forever, apparently. Jesus. I know, I'm all nearly carked it during this <laughs> podcast. <It's- laughs> Praise be, my hiccup has stopped. I'm excellent. Back. Excellent, excellent indeed. Good to know. Good to. Uh, all right. So, four star sample for the great escaper, uh, Jimbo. Yes, there is a horror film out this week that is a continuation of a beloved horror franchise. 
<laughs> we'll be talking about The Exorcist Believer in due course, but first up is a film that James had to convince me actually existed. It is called <laughs> Pet Cemetery. What's it called? Bloodlines. <laughs> Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Bloodlines. Which is on Paramount Plus. Sometimes and it is... dead is better, James. <laughs> well, th- that was exactly going to be my line for this. Yes, sometimes <laughs> dead is better. Imagine if, if you will, someone took a copy of Stephen King's classic novel and buried it in an old abandoned pet cemetery. <laughs> and then the next morning, this film would come crawling out of the grave to terrorize you for about 90 minutes, because that's more or less what happens. Oh, God. So this is a prequel story. And uh, you remember, of course, Judd Crandall, played by the legendary Fred Gwynn back in the 1989 uh, film better. adaptation. Indeed, indeed. Well, this is essentially young Judd, uh, and young Judd here is uh, he's kind of dodged the draft in uh, in Vietnam, uh, and he and his girlfriend uh, here, he's played by Jackson White. Uh, they want to leave town. They want to join the Peace Corps. Now, this all goes a little bit wrong when his friend Timmy, played by Jack Mulhern, comes back from his tour in Vietnam a little bit changed uh and it doesn't help that his dad played by david Duchovny, is being all creepy and secretive and shit and soon it becomes clear that maybe just maybe timmy didn't come back from vietnam intact maybe maybe something happened at the old pet cemetery which everyone in the town apparently knows about (laughs) and actually timmy's a bit of a wrong one now uh henry thomas is in this pam greer is in this uh lots lots of good people not so much in the way of good plot story or acting because it's almost unwatchably awful Uh, (laughs) this is not just worse than the pet cemetery movie it's worse than 2019 gender flipped pet cemetery movie it's bad i don't know why this exists there is no purpose for it there's no reason for it it makes a nonsense of everything because again it's that classic thing where they've taken a really classic story and totally tried to demystify the mythology behind it and it just makes no sense if everyone knows about this graveyard and they try to oh the graveyard was actually built to ward off evil was it I don't think it was. It's just, I don't know. The whole thing kind of just bugged the shit out of me. And it makes absolutely no sense, given everything that happens in this film. Everything that happens in this film, you would not believe for one second that Judd would ever say, do you know what? Let's bury that cat in there and see if it comes back. That would never, ever happen. So if you love Pet Cemetery, this kind of pisses all over it. Uh, but I should say this is directed by Lindsay Anderson Beer, uh, who also co-wrote it along with Jeff Bueller, who did work on the 2019 remake himself. Um, yes. And, you know, as you said, sometimes dead is better. This would have been better dead. So this is then a, a prequel to the 2019 remake, which I really didn't like. Not well, the it kind of doesn't Mary really Lambert matter, movie. does it? Because the only point point where the 2019 film deviates from the chronology is with the gender flip. And because this is a prequel, it doesn't really matter which okay. one it's a prequel to, because it's kind of a prequel to both. Okay. Either way, it doesn't matter because it's rubbish. It's set in 1969. I probably should have mentioned that. Okay. Um, yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. Sounds great. It. It's on Paramount Plus. Uh, <laughs> obviously, we're getting close to Halloween. Um, and uh, some horror films are coming out, and no, 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 no. we're that not that. We're not there yet. No, we're not. No, no, not What's until the happening? second half of October. No, there's a limitation. Absolutely not. There's, yeah. Oh, phew! It requires for a while. It'll go away. I've thought of that about you for a very long time, and it has not proven to be the case. Anyway, no. there are some scary films coming out, and uh, one I haven't seen yet, it's on Shudder this week, but it's getting raves, so hopefully I'll be able to catch it this week, is When Evil Lurks, which is a possession 
thriller slash horror directed by the Argentinian director Damien Rugna. And uh, yeah, apparently it is an absolute belter. So I'm looking forward to seeing that one. But speaking of possession horrors, brings us neatly on to... Helen. Hi. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. It's not very nice. Is one of the lines that was made famous by William Friedkin's 1973 (laughs) horror movie, (laughs) The Exorcist. Uh, There have been all sorts of sequels over the years and Mm. prequels. All of them. uh, Actually, that's not true. The Exorcist is three bangs. Uh, But uh, many of them are terrible. Now we have a new one. Now we have a now we have a new crew, mm. uh, and it is the Exorcist believer. Uh, David Gordon Green is back, back, back. Is it any good? I uh, think it's a very much a film of two halves. Um, oh, like in that I think it has a very good first half, or at least a good first half, and then a much much weaker second half. So the idea here is that basically um, there's a. I'm not going to get too much into the uh, the beginning, but there's a, a setup at the beginning with Leslie Odom Jr. playing Victor, uh, and he and his wife, uh, who's heavily pregnant at the time, are traveling, and there's a disaster, and some weird things are seen and, and done at that point, but it doesn't really matter. It's all set up. Uh, we cut to 13 years later, and life in a small town, and he's living with his daughter, Angela, played by Lydia Jewett, really, really impressively. Mm-hmm. And she and her friend Catherine, played by Olivia O'Neill, go off oh, into uh, the Olivia woods Markham. one day. Now, don't ever go off into the woods ever um, if you suspect you may be in uh, an exorcist film. Don't go anywhere if you suspect you may be in an exorcist film, actually, except maybe church um but uh but they go off into the woods and they disappear they turn up again three days later with no memory of what happened in between with strange wounds all over them and wouldn't you know with demons in their heads Mm -hmm. so then it's a question of what do we do for these two girls and can we save both their lives and uh, a big cast of family friends come together to try and do that including um jennifer nettles as uh Catherine's mother, for example, and Dowd is in there, Raphael Sparge. Um, and yeah. yes, Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil is someone that Victor calls on for aid and expertise because she has spent the years since the exorcism that she uh, was peripherally involved in. She wasn't in the room, I think, for the climax. Um, studying exorcist rites and, and trying to get to grips with this. So she has some expertise that might be helpful or not. Who knows? <laughs> I'm not giving any spoilers away. I I think like it is creepy at the beginning. Is it scary enough? Probably not. Is it gross enough? Certainly for me. Maybe not for like hardened uh, gore hounds like yourself. By yourself, I assume you mean me. I I was sure. <laughs> I was referring to Chris, but sure, you're you're famously well, hardy. I'm on. Before I bring in our our notorious Freddy Cat, uh, Amon Warman. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie yet. So Friedkin's movie. Yeah. Some people might think it, it's a little dated now. I think it still retains its power to chill and to and scare to and to shock. And I think it's still one of the great horror films. Mm. The sequels, less so. Exorcist 3, as I said, is a, is a bit of a banger. Um, but the possession genre, you could mm-hmm. argue, has been played out quite a lot. So does David Gordon Green find something new to play with? Is there something yes. new here? Yes and also no. So the fact that you've got two the fact that you've got two girls at once is uh is unusual. Uh it's not it's not completely unique for the genre but it does bring in some things that they play with. Um I don't know how I'm, I I don't want to 
give away any spoilers, but uh, you know, I will say that Victor turns to lots of different places to look for help with this, and and that's something that you don't always see as well. It's not quite so rooted in just Catholicism this time. Everybody gets a, a sort of spin of the dice. Um, and he goes to the Protestants and they go, well, I don't know, can't, can't help you, mate. Yeah, it's it's all a bit mystical for us, isn't it? But yeah. there are there are elements of churches being obstinate and individuals having to step up. But what what problem the, the problem for me was I f- I th- I felt that the exorcism scenes themselves were kind of woolly and unclear. You know, I wanted there to be a very clear plan of action. We're going to do this and then this and then this. And if this happens, we'll do that. And your job is to do this and your job is to do that. Because if you have that that clarity, mm-hmm. then you can kind of tell how things are going and it makes it more tense and more scary because you can see when things are going wrong. Mm-hmm. In this, there's just things going wrong, but you don't know, is this bad? Is this good? What stage are we at? Are we at plan number one? Or are we at plan number 100? Is this the last desperate stand? Or is this the first thing they're trying? You know, So I, I find that quite frustrating. And I'm not saying that you know it, it's not necessarily always necessary i don't feel like it's it's uh, something that maybe stands out about the original but in in the way that this is formed it would really help certainly me and a couple of other people i've talked to who've seen this so um so yeah so i thought the first half you know pretty strong pretty scary pretty creepy stuff a lot of build up a lot of character work and then the second half just kind of falls apart a little bit and does become kind of exorcism karaoke a little bit. So I I, I <laughs> find this frustrating. I didn't think it was bad. I was entertained. I wasn't bored. But I I just wanted a bit more from it than it could offer me. I'd love to hear <laughs> exorcism karaoke is amazing. By the way, <laughs> I found his weakness. Priest, <laughs> you just have to you have to you have to say the word priest on the end of every line. I'm I'm not joining you guys in the booth for that one. Uh, sorry. Where's your god now? <laughs> I'm on Warman. I'm on Warman. Where is your god now? <laughs> what do you think of this movie, Amon? Uh, I completely agree with Helen on the finale, which I thought was very dull and dragged for all the reasons that Helen says. Um, I think Leslie Odom Jr. is the best thing about this. Not really surprised. Been a big fan of his for a while. Um, and his arc, I think, is actually quite interesting. I just don't mm. think they eke enough out of it. I think there's eek. a lot, there's a lot more that could have been done without with it because he's a man who had faith and lost faith and is now sort of, as his daughter is going through this, trying to open himself back up to that in order to solve this problem. That's a really interesting arc. I don't think they go as 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 far as they can with it, but he is really, really good. A lot of grounded emotion, especially in that first half of the film. And the second half, you know, especially with the exorcism, I kept wishing, where, where's Russell Crowe's Pope when you need him? Or Russell Crowe's exorcist, rather, when you need him? Because they could have yeah. used some tips from him. I mean, he should have just come in on his moped and save the day. Um, that, but then that, the movie is very short, Amon. If, if the Pope's <laughs> exorcist shows up in his little Vespa, then I don't think it's Pazuzu. I think David Gordon Green said that, that this isn't Pazuzu. This is a different demon. Mm-hmm. You know, then they're all down the karaoke yeah. by by halfway through the movie. The, the <laughs> demon has his ass kicked. Back to hell, you bastard. You hell spawn bastard. Uh, and there you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I... And also, you know, as Helen said, like I, I'm a scaredy cat. There's a couple of moments in the early going that got me, but on the whole, um, I'm, I made it through. 
But The Exorcist is about creeping dread. It's about getting under mm. your skin. It's about keeping you awake at night. It's about making you think about great big existential questions like, what is? Are we alone in the universe? Uh, am I? What? What? What happens to me when I die? Is my soul condemned forever? I was bracing myself <gasps> stuff. for a long night's sleep, but I, I slept soundly in my bed. Was your bed levitating and or spinning at the time? <laughs> you no, know, you know, they, they, they did like an exorcist experience for uh, people who attended the screening the other night. I did not go to that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not trying to, even if it's fake, I, I, I don't want any part of that. Um, let me just, you know, watch the film, get through that and then go home. <laughs> I will say there's an exorcist believer house at Universal's Halloween Horror Nights, which I went to out in Orlando, and that that was quite fun to walk through. Mm. The uh, the exorcism scene where they are both on chairs, uh, tied mm. to chairs in the room, that was quite full on. Mm. Especially when having not seen the film, to walk through that was a, quite a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite a lot to watch as well. But just not what it just not what it could have been. I felt like all the almost all the ingredients were in place, mm-hmm. but it just didn't quite come together. All right, then. Three stars for The Exorcist Believer. I just got one last thing to do, which is to set up our final guest this week, who is the brilliant, literally legendary, the one and only wickedly talented Adele Deseem. No, it's <laughs> it's Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson, whose uh, short films based on the, the works of Roald Dahl are currently on Netflix, led by the wonderful story of Henry Sugar starring Benelin Cumberbund. And it's all very, very exciting. And I'll tell you what's even more exciting. The fact that whenever our John Nugent went to the Venice Film Festival a couple of weeks ago, he went to Wes Anderson's. I'm not even. I'm not even sure it was a hotel suite. I think he had a castle or something like that, <laughs> and uh, spoke face to face with Wes Anderson, who was apparently wearing pajamas. <laughs> monogram Amazing. with his own initials <laughs> which Superb. is the most Wes Anderson thing I think I've ever heard wow. and uh, here is their conversation very excited about this Wes Anderson John Nugent together at last <laughs> enjoy uh, we're delighted to welcome M- uh, Wes Anderson to the Empire Podcast how thank are you sir uh, very, I'm very good thank you so much I'm happy to be here I'm thrilled to speak to you especially you know usually in the Empire Podcast we speak in a, a grey depressing pod booth in London and it's not I mean, how we're doing it today. We're not, today is quite different. We're in, I guess, a 16th century villa in Venice. That's exactly what we're in. We're in the, we're on the island of, we're in the Castello area of Venice, yeah. San Pietro, next to, next to, I think, the oldest church in the region. And, oh, wow. And you'll hear in the background, occasionally, yes. uh, the sound will be ruined briefly by passing uh, water taxis, <laughs> or especially what we get around here are the... Um, the garbage bargers, oh, which really? I like. <laughs> In Venice, they have a wonderful way of collecting the trash. Yeah. The rubbish. I, it's funny, isn't it? Everything is by boat. And even like garbage trucks are kind of like delightful. In a yeah. Way. Yes. Um, we don't, we never see them that way. <laughs> How's your time been at Venice so far then? Great. You know, the thing is when you, I used to love to go to film festivals, um, to go watch movies. Yeah. Um, when you bring a movie to a film festival, Maybe some people find a good way to balance it out, but for me, usually it ends up you don't see anything. Yeah, I mean, the only movie you see is one movie that you've already seen six hundred times, <laughs> um, and uh, only now you get to see it in front of uh, in front of eight hundred and fifty strangers uh, in a state of uh, you know with with the absolute panic going through your body during the screen. <laughs> um, so that's right. But this is, I mean, I love Venice. And, uh, and it's great being here. And, you know, it's nice. There's a, you know, in the old days, like in Hollywood, now we've got there, there's also aviation in Venice, oh, yes, by the way. Um, there's a, yes, there's a good airport. 
Um, and it'll, we'll, we just try to weave a sense of that into it yeah, with our sound cool. effects mixing and post-production. Yeah. Um, the, um, but, um, uh, anyway, I love, I, I, I love Venice and I like the idea of a, of a sort of film community, at least in some loose way, like old Hollywood, all the movie people really did live in a sort of small yeah. area that sit, the town was kind of invented by the movies practically. Yeah. It at least, at least it evolved into that. And being at a film festival like this, you do kind of come across people for me now, I'm old. And there are people that say, oh, gosh, I've known this person who makes movies for 25 years a little bit. And we see each other, you know, in Berlin or in Cannes or in Venice. Yeah. Or I used to go to the New York Film Festival uh, every year and see everything. Um, so it's great to be in Venice. And you're here for your film, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. Yes. Um, which is wonderful. I saw it the other day and was just utterly beguiled by it. Oh, good. Um, is this is this a film that you've been that's been in your mind for a little while? It was for a long while. Um, it's a uh, and I'll make note that uh, it's one of the shorter films uh, that uh, that it's, it's, I think it's about thirty eight minutes long, um, uh, which is unusual length. But you know, it's not my story. It's Roald Dahl's, yeah. and I've loved the story. All, you know, since I was seven years old or eight years old, whenever he wrote it, um, because it kind of came to us immediately then. Um, and, um, and the Dahl family had set it aside for me. I asked for it probably in 2007 or so. And it's sort of been set aside for me very graciously uh, by the Dahl family all these years with the occasional, are you, are you going to do this eventually? Yes, please, if it's not too much trouble, just please keep it reserved for me a little longer. And finally, I had an idea of a, of a, of a way to go about it. Yeah. And, and obviously, you're no stranger. Obviously, you did fantastic box. And is, is it, does it feel like a natural fit adapting Dahl for you? Does... Well, I did Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, this is in 2000, I don't know when it was, a long time ago. Um, I wanted to make a stop motion movie. So uh, a movie in, with, in stop motion animation. Fantastic Mr. Fox was a story I loved as a child. And so I sort of picked it because for, for, for a couple of reasons. One is, one is, that, is that, is that I, I loved this character. I, lo I loved Dahl's story. Another was that I wanted to make a movie, a stop motion movie with animals that had fur and it was suited to that. And I, and I, lo and I thought the animation of Underground would be visual, I just have interesting visual, but mainly it was this character of Mr. Fox. But I was drawn to adapting Doll specifically because I wanted to make a stop motion movie. It was only because I was then, and then I got to know Doll's family and was around his world that I started, that I sort of said, well, I do have another Doll I would do. It. Probably I, I don't think I would have ended up adapting it if it hadn't been for knowing them. Um, and so that's how I ended up coming back to it. Um, but, um, you know, in, in a way we sort of, we don't exactly adapt it, adapt Henry Sugar in the most traditional way. We use Dahl's words. The cast both play the scenes in the story and also perform Dahl's writing yeah. in a way mixed into it. And it's a bit of an unusual form that just we sort of found our way into. Um, and, but I really loved doing it. And, um, and the other thing is we got such a good cast 
and we have Ray Fiennes who plays Roald Dahl himself. Yes. So, you know, there's something about the character of Roald Dahl that we wanted to try to get into it. Yeah, I really love that because uh, I, I might be wrong, but it looked like you were sort of borrowing from a BBC interview that Roald Dahl did. We, it, well, and that's, I, we, there were a few, uh, but the, yeah, there's one in particular, um, and um, I think it's shot on 16 millimeter, which we did. Yeah. Um, we see his writing hut. We see his life at Gypsy House where he lived and wrote. Um, and, you know, he's, you know, we see him in, I mean, I know ex exactly what you're talking about. We see him in his cardigan. We, yes. you know, we might have changed the colors a bit. But, um, but also, Rafe watched that and other documentaries. I mean, there's a lot of material out there about Dahl. He's a writer who people were so interested in, and he's charismatic. Um, and, um, and I think Rafe had sort of internalized a lot of Dahl such that, when it came time to shoot this, these scenes, which are him in his writing hut, and he tells us, he starts telling us these stories, he helps tell these stories directly. Um, he, um, um, he was doing something in between the takes where he was kind of talking to himself, and I was saying, what? and I was listening, what is he saying? And I realized he was doing Dahl from these documentaries. He was being Dahl in between. Uh, and he knew his rituals for preparing to write. And so I sort of said, okay, let's, uh, Rafe, whatever you're just doing, start over, if you would. And the beginning of our film is Rafe just improvising, but he's, but he's improvising something he's fully absorbed, and he's kind of become Roald Dahl. What I love as well about Henry Sugar is it's, it's kind of a story within a story within a story, right? It's a sort of Russian doll narrative. Yes. Yes, which I've done that before in my films. Say, yes. Grand Budapest Hotel, in particular, we, I, you know, did this, and, and, and then I did it in other times. But I kind of realized during this, I think the reason I did it in Grand Budapest Hotel, for instance, is because I knew it from Henry Sugar. I'd read that as a child, and I, and I think I was kind of entranced by this idea that you're telling a story and you meet someone and he tells a story. Um, and in Henry Sugar, there's another layer too. He meets somebody else who tells him a story. Um, uh, I like that sort of mystique that the the author, the voice of the author. Well, that's a character now. Uh, that's a character within the story. In ours, we actually had another, which is Roald Dahl himself becomes a character, um, but he sort of was. Well, the film is, is, is beautiful, I, I will say that, as it always is with, with your films. The, you know, the production design in particular is very uh, theatrical and inventive. And Was it all shot in studio? Maidstone Studios. Maidstone Studios, okay. Yes. Um, the, um, with, uh, um, uh, uh, there were some scenes that we did in, a, in, a, in, a, in more of an improvised studio nearby, yeah. but all in Maidstone, yeah. um, which is not generally considered one of the... One of the great film hubs of the yeah. of the earth. This Maidstone uh, in Kent in England. <laughs> Maidstone's in wow. Kent, um, and but Maidstone has a, has a small kind of wonderful uh, studio that I think is mostly um, uh, television things or bit broadcasts. Um, Jules Holland, I think, oh, yes. uh, does his uh, uh, broadcast from uh, yeah the music show. Yes, yeah. his show from uh, from there. Or I. I, I I think he still does, or at least he, that's what he did. Um, and um, but but yes, we had a very good experience there. Yeah, 
Well, it's, yeah, the, the, you really lean into the sort of, um, you know, theatricality and the kind of meta-ness of the production design, I suppose. I really enjoyed, yeah, yeah how it all sort of... Yes. Well, you know, I think um, we wanted to make a sort of uh, environment where the actors could tell the story directly to the audience, essentially, yeah. and that when they were, when, but going to new settings and spaces and often, rather than them moving to the new space, we bring the new spaces to them. Yeah. The, the sets are, are uh, gliding through the air and uh, sliding around. And so we are going to, 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 the, to the places where the story happens, but they never disengage from the audience. Yeah. Did you, was it, is it fun to create that? I mean, there's a fantastic recurring sort of gag with an invisible box. Uh, yes. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, yes. Is it, is it fun, like, coming up with these ideas? Uh, yes, very fun. You know, that, you know, we have, a, we, there's some levitating that has to happen in the movie. Yes. You know, and there's various ways to do levitating, I guess. But one of the, one way is you wire the people up, then, you know, you paint out the wires. And another way is you put the people on a green screen box and then you film with that and you paint out what's beneath them or, and I, you know, I guess there's a, a lot of different ways to do it, but I guess the way you don't, you normally don't do it in the movies is you, uh, take a wooden box and paint it to look like the background and stick <laughs> it under the person and have them sit on it and then have them turn it around after that, uh, uh, to show what it is. Um, uh, and, but that we sort of thought of on the spot, maybe just a few days before we shot it. And um, Catherine, Catherine Little, I think Catherine's the last name is Little. little um, our, our scenic painter, mm. Catherine, uh, was painting these Trump Loy backgrounds onto these boxes to give the illusion of levitating right while we were shooting it in between mm. takes, touching them up. Um, so uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and, 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 and Richard Ayoade are, are levitating on, um, on, uh, with a bit of wet paint. I mean, it works so well. It's such a it's uh, such a fun surprise when you when you're watching it. Yeah, ah, uh, good. Yeah, um, and you mentioned some of the cast there. You know, you've got a fantastic little like, troop of actors um, who who are in multiple roles as well, right? Yes, they're all. Yes, it's all it, it, it's all English. Uh, the cast, um, and we have uh, yes, we have Rafe, and we have Richard, and we have Rupert Friend. Well, Rupert Friend is actually in other short films. Yeah that we adapted, other doll short films that'll come later, but he's part of this little company, um, Ben Kingsley, um, and uh, who was wonderful. Um, and, you know, um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing uh, Henry Sugar. Benedict's also in another one, Poison, mm -hmm. uh, that, we, that we did. Um, and um, Dev Patel. Um, and so they all play multiple roles. And um, the only thing, you know, they're all English, there are no women, uh, which I, what do we do? But, you know, it's sort of that, that's how he wrote it. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, but I sort of, you know, I, I wouldn't mind do, doing another one that's all women. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I feel there might be a doll that would suit that and maybe one that we just do that way anyway. Um, yeah. but, um, but anyway, it was, I, I loved working this way and I loved having, uh, having the actors play multiple parts because somehow it it's kind of sometimes it connects the characters in the story in some odd way. The fact that this is the same 
actor lends the little part a different kind of presence or sort of gravity in the story when you say this this dealer in the casino is actually Ben Kingsley, this young man who's being described as Ben Kingsley, who was yeah. also playing this other much bigger part in the story. Yeah. There's, there's one other actor that I think I spotted, that might be wrong, but did I, did I see a Jarvis Cocker cameo? There's a Jarvis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it was that just, you know, brought joy to my heart just to see him pop up there. So. It's good to have Jarvis in the I mean, the he's movie. been like two or three of Four of your films now. Yes, he's in. Uh, well, he's in uh, in in um, the French Dispatch. He's a pop star, so he's only we hear is he sings a, he performs a song on the soundtrack, but he's also um, we see the album cover of his record, and he's you know there's an argument even about his he's he's, he's a pop star called Tip Top, mm. who I guess is French, although he's <laughs> although he's, he sings in English, um, and then um, he's a cowboy. In um in Asteroid City, going all the way back to Fantastic Mr. Fox, he plays a some kind of farmhand yeah. named Petey who has a banjo and sings a song. Yeah. Um and um and then uh, in this one he's 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 he, if you look closely he's in there a couple of times. He's he's a man who works at this casino at at the front desk of this casino. The man who remembers the name of the name of every member. Um, but he's also the house where Henry Sugar is staying in the countryside at the beginning of the story, pelting with rain. There's a group of people playing canasta in the background. Mm. Jarvis is the sort of lord of the manor in the, in, deep in the background, but you'd have to, you have to yeah, squint a bit to find him. No. Um, but he also does a song that, is the, uh, that, uh, that you won't, won't have heard yet, but there's... Dahl wrote something that's in the the collected stories, that wonderful story of Henry Sugar and six more, that is his rules for being a fiction writer. Um, and Jarvis uh, has an adaptation of that that he yeah. performs with sitar yeah. uh, that um, that will eventually be included in this little collection of things that uh, that this gathering of short oh, stories. Fantastic. Yeah. And do you still do? You, we hear about these like sort of communal dinners that you do, um, you know, every night and on, on your films. And is, is Jarvis there like playing songs? Is he entertaining? Yes. Well, yes. In in uh, in Spain, uh, when we did the the last one, I did Asteroid City. We we shot in Spain, and Jarvis was. Um, we had Jarvis, and we had Sal George, who uh, who is a wonderful musician who had worked been in. I, I know from back when we did The Life Aquatic, which is a movie I made maybe 2003. And, um, and we also had Richard Hawley, who's, a, who's uh, friends with Jarvis and is, is a real kind of expert in uh, American regional music and all kinds of music, I guess, and wonderful musician and performer. And also Tom and Rita Hanks. Rita Hanks is a, is a musician, but the, the, the two of them did some singing. Um, we had our friend Fisher Stevens, one of the actors, has a has a collection of harmonicas. So it's really interesting to have you know have dinner and then have the people just bring out their all their instruments and start performing. And, and you know, and there's Jarvis Cocker. And Jarvis one night did you know Jarvis knows one of my favorite pulp songs is from this is hardcore dishes. This song mm-hmm. dishes is kind of my favorite pulp song. And um, and so Jarvis did dishes one night, which was amazing. Yeah. I mean that's pretty cool, right? It's just pretty to have good. private performances by a 
Yeah, spontaneously. And in fact, to have to, to even have me say from the balcony of my room on occasion, okay, everybody, that's it. <laughs> We're shooting early tomorrow. No more impromptu concert. I hear that <laughs> guitar coming out of the case. Please put it back. Yeah. <laughs> that did happen. <laughs> that did happen. Is there anything you haven't done that you would really love to do? Is there a sort of genre, like a musical or even an action movie yeah. that you would love to try one day? Is there well, I there is, you know, the thing is, I, you know, I guess I'd be interested in so many different kinds of things, but I tend to be pretty singular about, but what I'm thinking about now is this thing. And the, this thing I have is, a, is something that um, I finished writing right before this uh, Writers Guild strike, and we had planned to be shooting now. And, um, and then the actors strike began. So when the time is right, I have this movie uh, ready to go uh, with Benicio del Toro. And um, I think that'll be a fun one to go do. Um, uh, but um, then beyond that, I think, you know, I, I mean, I've, you know, the one thing I think I would like to do something that involves the word suspense. You know, I love Hitchcock, and um, maybe there's my version of suspense. I don't know. I don't know if it will be suspenseful, um, but um, but that's that's something kind of in the back of my mind. Mm. Oh, I would love to see that. Uh, Where's Anderson Hitchcockian <laughs> we'll suspense see. thriller? Yeah. We'll see what that is. Yes. Well, whatever it is, we will always be first in line. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to talk with you. Thank you. Nice to talk with you here in Venice. Okay, so that was Wes Anderson and the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and the other Roald Dahl shorts are now streaming on Netflix for your viewing pleasure and delectation. And speaking of pleasure and delectation, that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Now you can have some. Uh, you can <laughs> run around and enjoy yourselves. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, someone. We'll be joined by someone. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all I know. We'll be joined by someone on next week's podcast. Leave it with me. You're in safe <laughs> and capable hands. Um, and speaking of safe and capable hands, it's time to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such a lethal cunning. We've had a few hiccups along the way, haven't we, Ahmad Warman? <laughs> Just a few. Peace. Just a few. Uh, James Dyer is probably not listening, but if he is, goodbye, James Dyer. I'm vaguely listening. Please listen to the Pilot TV podcast. Bye. Oh, he was definitely listening in that case. And it's also <laughs> goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Toodaloo to Helen O'Hara. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to go down to karaoke with my old mate Pazuzu. <laughs> <laughs> we might have a bit of a bondioke session. It's going to be amazing. I've got a license to kill. And you know I'm going straight for your heart. Well, soul, presumably. Priest. <laughs> you got to add priest on at the end. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye, priest.